Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now. So welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast and video for those that are tuning in and watching today. Uh, as you know, for those that listen often, um, you know, we try, we work on having experts in areas and unique perspectives to, for our, for the, the common goal of what I'm trying to do with the compassionate capitalist movement. And that is to uh, expand people's perspectives about investing in entrepreneurs, uh, best practices for investing in entrepreneurs, as well as um, for entrepreneurs, what is, are the best practices for attracting capital and then growing your business to a successful exit? And of course, one of the best ways to get that information is when you get a unique situation where you have a successful entrepreneur and a successful investor all in one. And that's my guest today, Joe Beverly. So he'll say hello, Joe, and then I'll introduce you officially. Thanks, so, <laughs> I've known Joe for a, a few years now, and uh, when he we ran into each other on one of these, um, you know, as in COVID, we don't see each other a lot face to face these days anymore, and so ran into each other on a, a pitch event recently, and I saw that he had started an incubator, the Cranium Incubator, and I was like, wow, that's exciting. I need to learn about that. So uh, we we got together, we talked, and I invited him to be on the show because he had some very um, unique perspectives, and uh, we're going to share those with you today. So let me tell you about Joe. So he's the founder, as I said, the, Cran the Cranium Incubator. It is an inclusive neural network that started in 2020, and, and we'll dig into that. Before Joe felt called to launch the Cranium Incubator, he served as president of the Atlanta Technology Angels. And uh, not all angel investors got their wealth from a big big exit to go from entrepreneur to an investor seat. And many angel investors, as was the case with my own angel investor group that I managed for a decade, the network of business angels and investors, create their wealth from their own business and establish an investment strategy to take personal wealth from their own success and seek to invest it in entrepreneurs they believe will succeed. Remember, the definition of a compassionate capitalist is someone who invests time, knowledge, resources, and capital into entrepreneur endeavors that bring innovation to the market, create jobs, and generate wealth for all those involved. And Joe Beverly is absolutely a compassionate capitalist. After graduation from the University of Georgia with a bachelor's in international business, he worked at a corporate gig in Data Point at Data Point Corp before starting his own business in 1984. His company, Adaptable Systems Corp, started by providing accounting systems to clients and shifted to payroll services in 1991 and continues to grow year over year doing business as corporate payroll services. So welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Show, Joe. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks a lot. I'm glad to be here. So as we mentioned earlier, you know, our, our topic is this is to, you know, specifically the compassionate capitalist, the cranium incubator, an inclusive neural network. So I want to first ask about sort of fill in the gaps on your story. What made you decide to start your own business and how did you actually get it started? Was it through SBA, savings, bootstrap, a side gig? before you left the corporate world, your own investors. Talk a little bit about what motivated you to start that. Yeah, so um, I started, as you mentioned, in 1984. Um, I was not funded by large investors or anything. It was just bootstrapped. Um, and I you know, just used personal funds and I had been in sales and I, I knew that I would or felt like I would be able to sell enough to keep my head above water. So um, that's what I did. And we actually, um, I started in one business and about six years later, we pivoted into a, a very different business, um, got into the payroll service business in, in uh, 1991 and have been doing that since. 
Yeah, and so was um, so was it? Just, had you always wanted to be an entrepreneur, and it was I'm going to go to school, get experience in corporate world, and then do this, or you know, because it's that whole born or bred idea of of an entrepreneur and what their motivation is. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I knew I always wanted to be. Um, I had a very um, lower middle class background growing up, and. Um, certainly was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Um, so, you know, I, I, um, I knew that I didn't want to be poor. And, um, and I felt like uh, being an entrepreneur was one way to hopefully make that not happen. So, um, yeah, I, I was definitely, um, you know, not didn't raise a lot of investor money or anything like that. Did raise a little bit of friends and family once we started the payroll service business in 1991 and uh, raised some money actually from a guy who had um, started working for me and he, he believed in what we were doing and he still works for me over 30 years later. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, so, okay, so then not till like 1991, when did you, did you even know of that as an angel investor at that time or it was just somebody you knew you needed some money and he was willing to kind of partner up or had folks that were part of it? Did, did you call it that at that time when you talked to him? You know, I don't think I knew at that time that it was, I really didn't know what angel investing was at that time. I don't think I became familiar with the concept of angel investing until a little bit after that. Um, and, but didn't do anything about it until 2013 when I joined the Atlanta Technology Angels. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's interesting. So, so you were, I think were you invited, like they had reached out to you and said, Hey, come check us out. Or were you started looking around to see if there was anybody doing this angel investor thing? Yeah, I started looking around and, and found, you know, Atlanta technology angels found their website. Um, I, you know, put in contact information on that. Um, I actually didn't get a call back and, um, or, you know, a, a contact back. And so I called someone else that I knew was in a private equity group and said, hey, do you know anybody who's, you know, with the Atlanta Technology Angels? And he gave me a couple of names. And I, so he gave me two names. I called both of them and figuring that, well, one of them probably won't call me back. They ended up both calling me back. Um, so one was Michael Horton and then uh, Steve um, uh, Waldron. So, oh, yeah. So, yeah, anyway, okay. so that's, uh, I ended up talking to both of them and you know, got invited to join and all that good stuff. Good. So, you know, when we were chatting the other day, I was pleasantly surprised at how many investments you've made since you started. Was it like 16? And 16. Yeah. And how, and, and out of how many of, have you considered? Oh my gosh. I've, I guess I've seen probably, I mean, I'm guessing I've seen at least 300 presentations, probably more. I've gotten into some level of due diligence on probably, I would guess at least 35 to 40, um, maybe even a little more than that. And, you know, gotten into pretty deep due diligence on probably at least 30 and then decided for one reason or other, you know, something didn't work out. So, well, one of the things that I, you know, I, because as you know, I have my book, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing. For those that are looking, there it is on my my Which page. I've read. It's a great book. So I, uh, I recommend people read it. Thank you so very much. <laughs> you can tell me later. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but one of the things that, um, you know, I talk about in there is the value of you know, particularly when you're starting out being part of a group now, you know, it's intended for that person that's just trying to figure it out and figure out how and they play and how they participate and if they may or may not geographically be in a place where they or have the time because there's a, a depending on structure of angel groups, there's a time commitment you have to make to participate in the committees to screen them and do due diligence and, and all those kind of things. So do you have any particular, you know, uh, uh, inside secret, if you will, as to, because, you know, I guess you've made some investments outside of the group, the, the value, particularly for you when you were first getting started of starting through a group like ATA? Uh, absolutely significant value from, um, you know, doing that. 
I, I tell people that I'm, I generally am a do-it-yourselfer. So one of the thing I'll tell, one of the things I'll tell people is that, you know, if a toilet breaks in my house, I'll fix it. I mean, I could pay somebody to fix it, but, you know, I know how I can take it apart. I can, you know, I'll fix it. Had to fix a couple, a couple of weekends ago. Um, so I'm generally a do-it-yourselfer, but for angel investing, I strongly suggest not being a do-it-yourselfer because you just get this, um, participation from other people, you get their great ideas, you get, you know, where you're sitting around, well, used to be sitting around a physical table, now it's maybe on a Zoom meeting, but you're sitting around a table with a bunch of other smart investors, and they're asking questions, which, you know, make me hit my head and say, oh, I should have thought to ask that question. I like to think that I ask some questions also that make them hit their heads and think, oh, yeah, I should have asked that question. But you get much better um, due diligence, I think, when you do it in a group. So even though I'm very much a do-it-yourselfer, I, I very much for angel investing suggest people that um, they, they do it with other people and get multiple people's minds on uh, doing the due diligence. Yeah, absolutely. Now, did you set up an investment thesis when you first we're getting going like you knew because you knew like financial systems and accounting. So you're going to do fintech or were you just sort of a sponge and waiting to see what came from this group and, you know, this, this collaborative approach that they have. Yeah. I would say more of a sponge. Um, there are some good statistics, which came out of a study that was done. I think it was initially done in 2006 or seven and then updated in 2016, but it, they studied a lot of different angel investments, like over 5,000 investments with over 1,100 exits. Wow. And I became familiar with that study very early, like probably late 2013 or early 2014. And one of the things that came out of that was that um, if you have industry expertise, um, in that study, those who had industry expertise had about 2x the, um, their investment. So in other words, if they invested a dollar, they got $2 back if they had industry expertise in that investment. But there were other things that had much greater um, returns. So for example, um, for those investors who did less than 20 hours of due diligence, the average returns were something like 1.1 or 1.2 or 1.3. But for those who had average returns, I'm sorry, who did uh, due diligence of more than 20 hours, their average returns jumped to something like 5.7x. Really? And for those who did more than 40 hours of due diligence, their returns jumped to something like um, 7.1 or 3 or something like that x. And so, because I, I came to understand that you know, more due diligence had a much greater impact than having industry expertise, I decided, okay, I'm gonna try to do a lot of due diligence. If I had only invested in financial type companies, I might not have made any investments already. Oh, um, sure. So there might not have been any. And so I decided that, okay, I was gonna make sure I did a lot of due diligence. And if I didn't know anything about the industry, that I would educate myself, and, and I have. I mean, I've educated myself on genetics and on physics and just some things that I really didn't have any formal training in um, to, in order to be more um, knowledgeable about, you know, whatever uh, particular business was that I was looking at. Well, and I would think too, the collaborative nature of a group is that there, there likely isn't somebody in that group that has that expertise. So you get to, you know, get conversational, you know, on the topic with them where they can dig a little bit deeper. That was within a NBA and I, we didn't have quite the structure that ATA has, but that was a big thing when we would have a deal champion because the deal champion would be somebody that knew that industry significantly better than the other people knew the industry. Yeah. 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 And we're going to talk a little bit, um, a little bit later about transparency in um, the due diligence process, because I think that's important and that's something that, that um, we'll wrap up with in some best practices. But I wanted to ask, so, you know, part of, um, I always tell entrepreneurs, 
when they're working towards investors and there's the, the difference of subjective investors and objective investors, people in the business of investing, right? And everybody that's in the business of investing, they're committed like you are, certain amount of hours in a week, even though you run, you still operate a successful business. And even um, they commit the time, they commit the, you know, the, to do the research, they commit to do the due diligence and they always make it they're very common will make a mistake i actually the podcast that i have going live next is me talking about some mistakes that i have made based off of um this concept of customer discovery which you and i have talked about as well which is a big plus of an incubator right um and i've made some of those same mistakes because you fall in love with the technology or you fall in love with this the passion of that entrepreneur and you you kind of like you hedge in an area, you don't do the proper due diligence, right? So is there any kind, and I say that there's always this hidden checklist of the things that I'll never do that again, right? Mm -hmm. That you kind of, when you're watching a pitch or you're seeing something and your little red flag goes, oh, you know, I remember that from direct experience. Do you have anything that's on your, your inside secret, your hidden checklist? Like, oh, if I knew what I knew now, I wouldn't have done that. Or now that I know that it would seem so logical to not have done that. I wish I had just sat in, in, in the moment and thought about it a little bit longer from your early days of investing. You can share. Yeah, so um, uh, one of my very first investments, um, and I've definitely learned things over time. So I didn't know as much um, then certainly as I know now. And um, the founders in that investment had, you know, more like corporate salaries than startup salaries. And um, <laughs> I, I know now um, that that's, you know, that one went to a total zero, um, which a lot of them are going to do that. Um, you know, the, the stats that came out of that same study I mentioned more or less indicated that if you make 10 investments, four will probably go to zero five will be break even as a group. And you're likely to have one out of that 10 that will provide significant enough returns to you know, make up for all those losses. So um, that one was one that, you know, one of the ones that went to zero. And um, I, I like to think I would not have made that investment today. So. Yeah, I know that's a, uh... I think uh, early on, um, Sig Mosley, who I know you know well, he's a legend in the Atlanta angel tech market, um, told me um, a long time ago that that was one of his criteria, right? Is And one of the things he, like, he calls it a hunger factor, that when he looks at some of the CEOs, when he's made an investment, if they're coming out of a, a corporate fat cat gig, and they just feel like they got to go start a business. They are not prepared for the hard work that it's going to take um, to, you know, burn the midnight oil, take a cut, a haircut when you need to, because you got to make payroll, you know, all those kind of things you do as a hungry startup founder that sometimes uh, people come from wherever they come from don't necessarily have that same perspective. You know, they're, they're not used to being the one-armed paper hanger because they had like all these people that they could go get to do different things, right? And that's, sure. you know, one of those things that you learn from. So um, switching over to talk about this incubator that's so exciting, right? So your tagline, uh, you know, and I, let me just say this too, uh, for the cranium, the cranium incubator, for those, the website, C-R-A-N-I-U-M dash incubator, which is spelled I-N-C-U-B-A-T-O-R.com, an inclusive neural network. Explain that tagline and this need for inclusion. So um, we spent, um, I and the, this um, lady who is helping me you know, with the incubator, um, we spent, I don't know how much time coming up with a name and coming up with a tagline. We talked about all kinds of things, but um, once we came up with Cranium Incubator, you know, the Cranium Incubator, then 
um, you know, the cranium obviously is what encloses your brain, right? So, um, and we thought that an inclusive neural network, um, you know, because that's related to that, would be a great tagline to, because it is. it is inclusive. You know, we are looking um, for, you know, female and or minority founders and, you know, hoping to help them. So, um, and then, you know, one other thing, we, the attendees to the incubator, we call them brainiacs. That's okay. the way we refer to them, so. Good, good. Well now, and you started it right sort of in the midst of the pandemic, right? At the beginning of 2020. So what, what made you feel that the time was right to start had the pan pandemic and the economic malaise started when you launched Cranium and you just sort of were ahead of the wave on that or? Talk about the timing and your decisions on those. Yeah, so what happened was um, I, um, for my business, um, I had bought a piece of property that had, you know, building, a couple of buildings on it. And one of the buildings we were going to occupy, the other building had a couple of tenants in it, but had some empty space. And this was in the fall of 19, of 2019. And I thought, you know, I, I wouldn't mind starting an incubator slash, you know, um, co-working space. In, in some of that empty space. And so I had planned on that. Um, the lady who was helping me, um, I had spoken with her and had um, in, in that late fall um, and had said, you know, hey, this is one of the things I'm thinking about doing. Would you be interested in helping with that? And she's like, oh, very, very interested. And I said, and you know, I, my intention is to make this for minorities and or um, female owners. And um, she said, that would be great. I, you know, I'd be very interested in that. And, and so, um, so anyway, you know, started making some plans towards that, but she didn't start, she didn't actually start working until mid-February. And um, the night of March 2nd, I sent an email to all my employees saying, hey, we got to figure out how to work from home. People got to be distanced from each other if they're in the office. And from that point through about June or July, um, I was probably working 100-hour weeks just trying to keep my business going and um, do all the other things, kind of do some of the bare minimum stuff relative to angel investing. Um, wasn't really looking at new investments so much then. But, but finally, kind of once that stuff got settled out, then in um, like late July, early August, I said, okay, let's make this happen. And we're going to start our first cohort in September, come hell or high water, and that's what we're going to do. And so, um, so that's what we did. That was the timing of it. Yeah, so great, because uh, so you really had the, had identified that you wanted to do this, uh, an inclusion perspective, long time, you know, before there was this spotlight shown on the, the, lack of diversity within, you know, it just, it's amazing to me that <clears throat> since spring, definitely through the summer, but really early on in spring, um, in, in part because of the Black Lives Matters marches, um, but also I think the pandemic showed so much of this difference between rural and urban and, uh, you know, who was getting access to capital, where were the new jobs coming, who was being, who was suffering the most a lot within small businesses that were struggling. And, you know, some of those, not necessarily the tech kind of companies that, uh, that uh, angel investors traditionally invest in, but it seems like, you know, it's become very, I don't, I hate to use the word trendy, because I would like to think that it's just a, an awareness that, um, you know, investor communities have become aware and, you know, a lot of us, I know myself included, did this whole perspective on what, do we have a bias? Do we have a, a sexual bias, a racial bias? Do we have that? I know early, I always thought that um, money was green and investors didn't have a bias until I'd actually talked to a few after some of my pitch events. And I'd say, and I think this company was great. And it, was, it might've been a woman presenter and it'd be like, why aren't you interested in that? And, you know, 
I, it's hard to say at the, you know, hindsight, whether that was a bias at that time or not. And so had you seen this yourself within your, because we had a, a little bit of a conversation about conscious bias and unconscious bias, share, share that with our listeners about what was, when, what, was it a, a journey that you were on or did you have an aha moment that said, you know, this is something I have the, the ability, the um, experience, the resources to do this. And so this is something that me, Joe Beverly is going to do to, because there's plenty of incubators, right? Mm-hmm. Atlanta itself's got 35 plus or something like that, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, to take on a, a, a different uh, mission, tell a little about that journey and that, that, that your perspective on that, please. Yeah, um, I wouldn't say, I can't point to, you know, it'd make a great headline, but I can't point to one moment where I said, aha, you know, I, I can't really say that. But certainly I became aware of the significant funding gap between, you know, minority and female firms um, and, you know, white males. And, you know, uh, fortunately I was not raised um, to think any differently of anybody because of their skin color, their gender, anything like that. So, um, so I, I don't, you know, I did, I wasn't trained to be that way. If you right. Um, and so, um, you know, I really, um, over, over some period of time said, you know, that's really bad. It shouldn't be that way. And, um, there are statistics which indicate that, uh, female and minority owned firms do very well in terms of, uh, providing investor returns. And so, um, you know, combination of those two things, I'm like, well, if that's, if that second fact is true, then, you know, there should be no reason why they are not, you know, getting more funding. And, you know, as you mentioned, we had that discussion about conscious and unconscious biases, you know, potentially we all have unconscious biases. um, And, you know, some, some people have conscious biases, but um, I try not to associate with anybody that I know has any conscious biases but that happens. But assuming that, you know, you're dealing with people who have unconscious biases and, and because, you know, as I mentioned, I've seen well over 300, maybe 400 presentations, but I've made 16 investments. Well, you do the math. It's not like the only investor, you know, investments I saw were female and minority or white male or any of those. Right. I've seen presentations from all of those. And so, um, you know, in that I've seen all those um, presentations, but only made 16 investments, you know, it's a very selective process. The investors that I know, that I hang around with, um, I don't, you know, like I say, I don't know of any conscious biases they have. And so what I decided was, and what I believe is true, is that it is more, an issue of education, not necessarily formal education, but education of this is how you present to investors. Here are the things you need to understand. Here's the way your presentation needs to look. Here are the things you need to be able to know. Once the presentation is done, you need to be able to also back that up with understanding what your gross margins are and understanding what an income statement is and a balance sheet. And you know, there, there's this whole long list of topics um, that we cover um, you know, basically how to start, fund, run, and grow a business. And um, so that's, that was the reason for starting this, is to hopefully give those people as much information as I can give them about, um, to educate them essentially, yeah. the things they need to know to have a better chance. 100% of them aren't going to raise money. I mean, that's just, that's just the way it is. But I'm trying to at least give them a leg up right. and give them better chances to be able to raise yeah. money. Well, and also I think going through your cohort like that, even if they do decide not to raise capital or they you know, ch- modify their business, they're going to learn so much about the process of having a successful business mm-hmm. anyway, right? So now do you do your cohorts every quarter or how often do you do them? Yeah, so um, we did one in the fall. We're um, getting close to the end of one now, and we will start our next cohort in April. 
Uh, we don't know the exact date. It'll it'll probably be you know it'll be probably in that first week of April that we'll get started. We haven't done the final schedule yet. Yeah, um, and we'll we'll be accepting applications for it up until probably um, about March 31st or maybe even April 1st, 2nd, 3rd, somewhere yeah. in there. And so are these uh, Georgia companies, they come and be here? Are they all Atlanta companies? Um, they're a variety. So um, we have, so one of our um, attendees, our brainiacs um, in the current cohort, um, he is in New Jersey. And actually he, you're familiar, I'm sure with the startup runway. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's done and he um, won that competition. So, um, which was great. Um, and anyway, he's one of the ones in our current cohort. He's in New Jersey. Uh, I know last cohort, we had somebody in Texas or Louisiana or oh. somewhere. Else. So, I mean, we've had, you know, we have people from different places. There, a lot of them are concentrated in Atlanta, I think, just because that's a lot of where my network is and the people that I know and stuff. But but yeah, no, we're happy to have anybody. We did have somebody apply from India uh, last time and um, they ended up not being in that cohort. But I mean, it would have been really tough because our sessions start at six in the evening and you know, that would be like 3.30 in the morning or something in India. So 3.30, 4.30. Yeah. So do you, will you continue to do them virtual? So you're, you're have a, a broader potential for getting qualified companies? For now, we're going to do them virtually. Um, you know, we got to see what happens with people getting vaccinated and all that stuff. And yeah. You know, the number of cases, you know, get down to a very low level. Um, eventually, I would like to do them in person, but I think that even once we do start to do them in person, I think that we will also have a virtual, you know, it'll be a combination of in-person and virtual. Yeah, you were sharing with me the um, this idea that you used to illustrate what an entrepreneur has to do in order to qualify for investor capital for serious, you know, the, the, the people that are in the business of investing. And you talked about, you know, the difference between and not getting an A as a 90 or 90 or a hundred. So share that, that uh, parable or whatever it might be. Yeah. Cause I, I love that. It was really, yeah. really perfect. Yeah. So um, you know, I, I gave you the numbers a few, few minutes ago about um, having seen 300, maybe 400 presentations. I've made 16 investments. You can do the math that this is not like a test that, you, you know, we took in high school or college or wherever, where, you know, you make a 90 on the test, you make an A. And that's a good grade, right? Um, you know, for investors, a 90 is failing. A 95 is failing. So you've got to make like a 98, 99, or 100 maybe to, quote, make an A on that test where you're going to even get to that next level probably. So, um, you know, 95 might get you into a one more session where they're going to ask more questions, but you, you have to ace it from there. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's not like, and, and that was, um, it's funny, the guy that won the startup runway, uh, Daryl Frater is his name, um, he, he told me, um, uh, I guess it was weekend before last now, but I was talking to him and, and he said that really stuck with him. And, and, and don't get me wrong, he was, you know, he had a good presentation before I went through his presentation with him. Um, but I like to think I made a few improvements to it that helped him, but but he, he had a good, solid presentation. He's a good, solid entrepreneur. Um, but um, he said that really stuck with him and really made him think, okay, it's got to be perfect. It's not yeah. good enough isn't going to be good enough. It's got to be perfect. So when people, when these uh, women and minority founders go through your um, cohort, through your thing, you know, one of the things that um, I always try to encourage women and minority businesses is to you know, don't, so many of them, I think the reason why they haven't had a seat at the table besides, you know, not the, the money for sources, not reaching out to try to attract them, but they also have this fear of asking for capital, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of times entrepreneurs will have that. They know they need it, but they don't, they don't ask for capital or approach asking for capital from a position of strength and confidence, right? So, you know, it's like, do the work, 
own your story and find the ones that share the vision. One of the things that you shared with me, though, you also, because that's kind of like getting to that 98, right? You got to get there. You have to have that, right? But you also found that minority and women founders are less arrogant. So they tend to succeed. So talk about this concept of you've got to be confident, but the, the balance of confidence and humility to be successful when it comes to raising capital and being able to get the right guidance from investors yeah. that are choosing to invest in you. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty short answer. Um, you know, um, it's important to be confident and confidence is good, but there are people who cross over into arrogance and arrogance is really, really bad. Um, and the reason arrogance in my mind is really, really bad is that when you get to that arrogance of, well, I just can't do anything wrong and I'm perfect and all that, then you're not looking for what might be coming behind you to bite you in the hindquarters. And um, I certainly have made plenty of mistakes in running my business, mistakes that cost the business lots of money. Um, but I've also done some things successfully. And, but I've made enough mistakes to know that I'm not perfect. And um, it is, there are plenty of things that can come bite me. And any entrepreneur who's just starting out, I mean, I'm still that way today. I know things could all go south. So, um, and any entrepreneur who's just starting a business, um, they have got to be looking out for all the potential threats that they face because they are, there is just a boatload of those threats that can face them. So um, it's good to be confident. I suggest that people develop confidence by knowing their stuff. They have studied, they've worked, they stay up till two, you know, they whatever to make sure they understand all the things they need to understand, certainly about their business, but then just about more mundane topics, whether it's accounting or whether it's marketing or selling or whatever it is that they're doing everything and anything they can to learn all those things. When they get that education, they will be more confident and it will be deserved and it won't be arrogant because they know their stuff. And yeah. they can be, they should be, you mentioned the word humility, you know, they can also be humble. Um, but I think that good combination of confidence, but also with a dose of humility, I think it's, that's a good combination. Yeah, and and uh, and so let's uh, talk. We mentioned it at the top of the hour. The uh, this idea of within due diligence is the transparency. So yes, you're doing your right math on your numbers, and you're understanding who your customer is, customer discovery, all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that I have found that is you can never recover from. You can always get more insight about your customer if you got a fundamental right business model and that kind of stuff. But lack of transparency, lack of, and it's not even, it's not directly being dishonest, but when an entrepreneur knows that there is something that is has happened in the past that is a material fact and they don't disclose it to the investors, when the investors find that out because they do due diligence, that it will kill the deal for them and there is no recovering. You can recover, like, I, so I'll use one of my examples and I'm sure you have an example. It was a company that we'd actually raised quite a bit of money for within NBA and I. It, it's, uh, they're, they're still out there. They're still a going concern. It's a non, it's a non-allergenic latex uh, called Vitex. And um, at the time, the founder of it, the inventor had, um, and, and we had this, I had this, our local group had done it, but I was also syndicating with this group of doctors up out of Tennessee or someplace. And um, they loved it because the idea of non-allergenic latex gloves, you know, originally was sort of the catheters and things like that. So the medical space totally got it. Well, apparently he had been investigated by the FDA about one of his claims on something else unrelated to this. And he didn't disclose it because it had been resolved favorably towards him, but it wasn't in any of his disclosures. So when they as doctors went and Googled 
all they found was the complaint. They didn't find initially all that other stuff. So he could, he could go and show that, oh, it was all fine. It wasn't everything. They investigated it was all fine. But he had already lost their trust. And even though because even though it was like not that big of a deal in that particular situation, he had not disclosed it. And so that was like a million dollars that he was due to get from that investor group that was gone. There was no coming back from that. So it's so important. And we, I've had other examples you know, one of uh, another, uh, an investor that you and I both know, he did his due diligence, found this thing in somebody's history that had been an SEC issue, again, had been resolved, but because he didn't disclose it, killed that guy, he was queued up, ready to put a, a six-figure check into them, done, gone, dead. So, you know, and then as a result of him knowing that, it killed it for the rest of our group as well that was looking at this technology and loved it and this guy didn't have check writing authority he had he had done all of that stuff but because he didn't disclose it so you know share that as a, your own experience as an investor on how critical that is to for entrepreneurs because now you're also advising and helping entrepreneurs through your cohort on what they have to do because you're not investing in all of it they're, but they're preparing to go out and invest and get attractive from other companies and why that's so critical to be really transparent with that. Yeah, and it, it's critically important. Um, what I will say, I'll say this to investors and to entrepreneurs. I'll say, listen, once an investment is made, the entrepreneur has so many opportunities to abuse the investor, it's not anywhere close to funny. Um, and, you know, because yeah, sure, I can sue an entrepreneur for something or other maybe, but proving things, whatever, it's just, you know, it's probably not going to be worth it. So, so there has to be that level of trust that the investor has, you know, in, in the entrepreneur. And um, I'll give you a great example of, of it's, it's a similar story to what you told was, and this is very soon after I had started, um, you know, getting involved with the Atlanta Technology Angels. And um, we were in a due diligence meeting, um, the guy that the entrepreneur had been president of a bank and the bank had gone under um, in 2008 or nine, you know, during the Great Recession, it might've been 2010 that it went under. But, but anyway, um, in this due diligence meeting, the question had come up to this entrepreneur that there had been an FDIC lawsuit against the bank that this entrepreneur had been present of. And, um, you know, his characterization of it was, uh, you know, it was, it was no big deal. I mean, they, the FDIC sued all the banks that went out of business and, you know, it was a tough time for all the banks and whatever in, in that, you know, 2008, 9, 10 timeframe. Um, well, I was either dumb enough or smart enough um, to look up the FDIC lawsuit and started reading it. And long about claim 61 or 62 or something, you know, started these claims of um, how there'd been, uh, I wouldn't exactly say self-dealing, but how there had been um, assets which were um, owned by this president of the bank, which the president of the bank had sold back to the bank um, very shortly before the bank went under. Um. And, yeah. And that the assets, I think, were um, also had not been secured properly. You know, the president of the bank basically had gotten a loan that you and I wouldn't be able to get without having security on the underlying assets, mm -hmm. right? You know, if, if we buy what I won't specify what the asset was, but that would make the, that makes the story even juicier. But I don't want to get <laughs> but um, and had that asset, you know, had we bought that asset with a loan from the bank you know, the bank would insist on having at least security on, on that asset. So anyway, um, he, had, he had totally mischaracterized the nature of that suit and how, you know, they had, um, he had been personally mentioned in that suit and stuff and, you know, for personal assets and whatever. Anyway, it was, um, I didn't return that guy's calls or accept his LinkedIn request or anything like that to connect. I mean, I just, I was done with that because any, any hint of dishonesty or lack of transparency, as you mentioned, that is just not good. I mean, that is, that, 
that loses immediate faith for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's so, um, you know, that's one of the things uh, and I early on when I in my Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Breaks, my little video tips that I send out. One of the things I have one that's very specific to transparency, because, you know, even though public companies will get in trouble and they'll do stuff with their and we've seen big scandals on that. The whole thing about a public company is that they are public with a lot of this information. They have to be by law. But when it comes to private companies, right, and private investors, there is this trust because there's no, there's an expectation that they're going to be transparent and they have some, you know, fraud laws and, you know, material concerns and, you know, some language that the SEC uses, but it's really up to the, the, the entrepreneur to be a full disclosure and 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 take the take the hits where they take them and hope that they're because they were fully disclosed their character or there's a way to box that in or work around that but at least because they fully disclosed there's not a violation of trust there's mm-hmm. another thing a hurley you might have to come over but with and with the investors you can't just you know every other type of investment has a mandatory type of disclosure you know, even like real estate, there is supposed to, sometimes they don't always tell you that somebody died there, but, or whatever, but you know what I mean? It's like in general, there's rules on that and there technically are rules, but you, the, the, your point about the more time you spend doing due diligence and working through that is, um, is, you know, a, a notch in the, in the risk mitigation category for that. Absolutely. I mean, there was one time when, um, so um, normally what we'll do is we'll send a questionnaire out to the entrepreneur, they fill out answers, and then we sit down with them and have meetings with them to go over the answers. And um, I was having a conversation with another ATA member about um, this other ATA member was suggesting that we could move that process along a little faster of the sitting down with them to go over these questionnaires, because it's you know, it's multiple hours. I mean, typically it would be like maybe two, three hour sessions to go through these answers to the questions and, and ask a lot of questions, additional questions. And um, they were talking about, you know, maybe we could move that along faster. I'm like, I don't want to move that along faster because, you know, it's like you go on a first date, right? So most people don't ask their date to marry them on the first date, right? Because um, they kind of want to get to know them a little bit and you know, understand what kind of person they are and you know, maybe kiss them or something, who knows? So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so you know, um, with investments, you also want to get to know them. People can be on their best behavior for a date or two or three or four, um, but the more time you spend with them, the more likely you're to see where if they show you some sign that, oh yeah, I lied to this or that person about that to achieve my goal or whatever, it's uh, okay. That's yeah. you know, you're not going to find out about that on a quote first date with an entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah, and, and perfect segue since I have a whole a chapter on that in the Inside Secrets to Angel Investing about introduction, first date, courtship, marriage. Right. So, yep. I, it's a very, it's, you know, it, there are a lot of similar similarities in that process. Right. So, well, that's about all the time we have, Joe. Thank you so very much. Uh, anything you'd like to close out with that I didn't cover or ask that you, you know, we want to remind everybody that it is cranium-incubator.com and go. And even if you're listening to this later, not in, the spring of 2021, I'm sure the incubator is still going to be going. There'll still be a cohort coming up. I'm intending your upcoming uh, pitch event for your graduates, and I'm really looking forward to it. And, you know, that's the other thing. If you're an investor listening to this, go and go to the website and look for that event to sign up and look at these companies and see what's going on. So there's something for everybody that's listening today at the Cranium Incubator with Joe Beverly. So... Yeah, there, there's no cost to attend the pitch event, um, and um, we we do have a $500 fee for being a part of the incubator. But um, we have a question on there that lets uh, attendees we depend on them to be honest, basically to self-select um, a scholarship level, 
And so, you know, one of the choices in the dropdown is something like, you know, I can afford the $500. Somebody else is probably better off who needs it more than I do. Um, the next choice is getting a 50% scholarship. In other words, $250 cost um, would, you know, be really helpful. Um, and then, you know, the third choice is something like getting an 80% scholarship. So in other words, a $100 cost for this um, would really take a strain off. And you're getting uh, 14 presentation sessions, which are an hour and a half each, plus 14 Q&A sessions, which are an hour and a half each. And then we have the pitch event and um, a couple other happy hours and stuff that we do to get to know each other. But um, so it's, um, it's a lot of content. I, we really push out a lot of information uh, to people. Um, but um, we like to think that it's uh, well worthwhile and we see some evidence that it's helped some folks from the first cohort. Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time to join with me today and share your insights and experiences and uh, really excited about what you're doing over there at Cranium. So thank you, Joe. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for listening to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast Radio, where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed. Help us spread the word about compassionate capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist Podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools, which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lindio as a entrepreneur's resource portal providing access to dozens of lenders offering short-term and long-term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. BizX, creating affordable advertising resources and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Cougarand Capital Holdings, is a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit karenrands.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network and our sponsors and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help you succeed.